Okay, so we're um, continuing our reading of chapter two of part one of individuation in light of notions of form and information. I think we might be able to finish this chapter today and then we'll go on to chapter three next time, but we'll see how far we get. But um, the section or the, uh, the subsection that we have been reading uh, and that we're going to finish right right now is uh, was on the the absolute genesis of uh, an individual as opposed to the relative genesis um, that we saw in the previous subsection. Uh, whereas in relative genesis, you have, uh, um, for example, the the crystal, the sulfur um, in one crystalline form that can then be recrystallized into a second uh, crystalline form. Now we're in in the case of the absolute genesis. We're instead looking at the formation of a of a crystal out of um, an amorphous substance uh, in the first place, rather than from one uh, crystalline form to another. And then we'll see in the next subsection he's going to discuss um, a little bit about what the difference is between these two, um, the relative and the absolute genesis. But we just have a couple paragraphs to finish um, in, in this subsection first. So I will read those two uh, paragraphs and then we can discuss. The quite remarkable meditation that Plato delivers in the Parmenides on the rapport of being and becoming, resuming or announcing the meditation of the Philippus, cannot lead us to discover to the discovery of a mixture of being and becoming. The dialectic remains antithetical and the content of the Teton tea cannot seem to be anything but a unsatisfying postulation. This is because Plato cannot find in Greek science the notion of a suspended becoming that is asymmetrical and immutable. The alternative between static being and the inconsistent emanation of Genesis and Torah could not be avoided by the introduction of any mixture. Participation among ideas and even among the number ideas, such as we find it in the eponymous, or as we reconstructed based on books Mu and Mu of Aristotle's metaphysics with the theory of the metrion, still conserves the notion of the superiority of the one and the immobile over the multiple and the moving. Becoming remains conceived as movement, and movement remains conceived as imperfection. Nevertheless, through this infinite dawn this, that is Plato's thought in the decline of his life, we can search the sense for a real mixture of being and becoming, which is intuitive rather than defined in the direction of ethics, to be immortalized in the sensible and thus also in becoming. If the Timaeus were written at this moment, perhaps we would have had since the fourth century a doctrine of the mixture of being and becoming. After this effort remained fruitless, seemingly due to the esoteric nature of Plato's teaching, the philosophical meditation inspired by Plato with Fusippus and Xenocrates returns to the dualism founded by Parmenides, this founder of the thought upon which Plato authorized himself to bear a sacrilegious hand in order to say in some way and in some relation that being is not and that non-being is. The accepted separation between physics and reflexive thought has become an avowed philosophical attitude starting with Socrates, who, disappointed by the physics of Anaxagoras, wanted to bring philosophy back from the, from the sky to the earth. Aristotle's work certainly marks a vast encyclopedic effort, and physics is reintroduced. But this physics, deprived of mathematical formulation after the repudiation of archetype structures and preoccupied with classification more than measures, is not what can provide paradigms for reflection. A synthesis of being and becoming failed at the level of inert being, could not be solidly carried out at the level of the living being, since it would have been necessary to know the genesis of the living being, which still to this day is an object of research. Furthermore, the Western philosophical tradition is almost entirely substantialistic. It has ignored the knowledge of the real individual because it could not grasp the latter in its genesis. Whether conceived as indivisible and eternal molecule, or as richly organized living being, 
the individual was grasped at a given as a given reality, useful for explaining the composition of beings or for discovering the finality of the cosmos, but not as knowable reality itself. We want to show through this work that the individual can now be an object of science and that the opposition declared by Socrates between physics and reflexive and normative thought must finally be done away with. This turning point implies that the relativity of scientific knowledge, savoir, is no longer conceived within an empiricist doctrine. And we should note that empiricism involves the theory of induction, for which the concrete is the sensible and the real is identical to the concrete. The theory of knowledge, connaissance, must be modified down to its roots, i.e. the theory of perception and sensation. Sensation must appear as the relation of a living individual with the milieu in which it is found. However, even if the content of this relation does not initially constitute a science, it already possesses a value insofar as it is relation. The fragility of sensation stems above all from the fact, from that fact that it is asked to reveal substances, something it cannot do because of its fundamental function. If there is a certain number of discontinuities between sensation and science, this is not a discontinuity like the one that exists or is supposed to exist between genera and species, but like the one that exists between different hierarchized metastable states. The presumption of empiricism, which is relative to the chosen point of departure, is only valid in a substantialistic doctrine, since this epistemology of relation can only be expounded upon by supposing the individual being as defined, it was impossible for us to indicate it before utilizing it. This is why we began our study by way of a paradigm borrowed from physics. Only later on did we derive the reflexive consequences resulting from this point of departure. This method can seem quite primitive. It is in fact similar to that of the Ionian physiologists, but it is presented here as a postulate for it seeks to found an epistemology that would be anterior to any logic. Um, so that bit, um, so Alyosha asked about the bit about how being is not and non-being is. So this is um, uh, a reference to Plato's Parmenides that he, uh, that he cites a little bit earlier. So um, of course, Parmenides uh, himself, the, the, the person, his doctrine um, was that uh, only being is, and uh, uh, it's absolutely impossible to say that um, that non-being uh, is, um, or that um, um, or that being is not. Um, um, and then, so in the Parmenides, it's a, a, a dialogue between uh, um, Parmenides as an old man and Socrates as a young man. Um, although the, uh, the real chronology doesn't actually work for that meeting to ever have happened. Um, Socrates, uh, uh, in that dialogue, um, comes up with uh, the doctrine that, um, that uh, non-being is and uh, being is not in a certain sense. Um, uh, so he is through the, the, the dialectic of all the different possible variations of, uh, of those concepts that they... they um, end up with that uh, being forced to um, acknowledge that in a sense, uh, non-being is and being is not. Um, and, um, and so this, um, at, at one point in the dialogue, um, Socrates uh, described this as being a, a, a parasitical doctrine um, because um, uh, Parmenides is, is uh, sort of his, his spiritual father. Um, and so he's, uh, He's uh, killing his his spiritual father um, by um, refuting his doctrine. Uh, that's that's what that line about the being is not and non-being is um, uh, is is about. Um, but here, uh, 
what what Simondon is pointing towards is that um, is the the absence in Greek science of any any concept like metastability um, or uh, something that would be um, or the, the the notion of a potential um, something that is uh, in some sense intermediate or um, a mixture between um, the the realm of becoming and the realm of of being. Um, so in in Plato. We only have this opposition between uh, the realm of, of becoming, uh, uh, coming to be and passing away, um, and then the realm of, uh, of, of true being, which is uh, uh, immune to uh, becoming. And uh, there's this sort of um, this strict opposition between the two, uh, and there's no intermediate concept or um, uh, mixture or something like that, which is what uh, Simondon characterizes as potential or metastability as, as uh, some sort of mediating concept um, uh, between those two. And then he points to the, the Timaeus as um, the, the, the place within Plato um, about uh, where, where that concept would have um, been the most uh, evident, I guess you could say, or or where it would make the most sense to try to insert that concept, uh, because so in the Timaeus, it's um, the whole the whole thing is, is depicted. Um, it, there's a sort of preface where where um, it's depicted as uh, being only about probability, because um, because um, we can't have true knowledge of uh, the realm of becoming. Um, the it's only we can only have knowledge of what is in the the proper sense, and not of what comes to be or or passes away. Uh, so we can only have probable opinion about uh, what becomes, uh, and so um, that's sort of the the preface to the whole dialogue. And then, uh, and then there is an account of the creation of the world by the demiurge, um, which uh, um, which is a, a an account of becoming uh, in the sense that the world is coming into existence. Um, but uh, again, there's no use of a concept of, of potential or metastability or something like that, um, which we could uh, we could instead, uh, or we might have expected to find there, uh, reading it sort of anachronis anachronistically, uh, reading our own concepts back into um, what Plato was doing. Um, and then there's a bit on uh, on page 87. I think this is important. Um, is, is that he he's he specifies that. Um, because of the advances of scientific knowledge since the time of, of Plato and Aristotle, uh, we can now have a, uh, a scientific concept of the individual, um, or, or we can grasp uh, the individual um, in its genesis uh, in a scientific manner, um, so that uh, what in at the time of, of Plato and Aristotle, um, what what at that time was was something um, that uh, was um, sort of a mystery um, is is something that can now be understood scientifically, uh, and so that allows us to sort of reformulate our our concepts um, on the basis of that scientific knowledge of the individual, um, and so I think that's an interesting uh, depiction of of Simondon's method here because he's he's. Uh, as we've seen, he sticks very closely to um, scientific uh, results, um, um, and then he draws the, uh, the the conclusions from those methods, from those scientific results, um, and and um, 
yeah, so I think that's just an interesting um, depiction of, of his method. So the uh, reference to Aristotle, I think, is interesting. Um, and uh, I guess I'm trying to... Uh, so, cause it, so to me, it seems like on one level, there's actually a similarity between uh, Simondon's project and Aristotle's project. Um, in that I think Aristotle was also looking for a much closer relationship between um, being and becoming than you know was there in Plato. So he was looking to overcome that dualism uh, in some way. And I guess he does it by bringing in the relationship between potential and actuality, right? Which I think is tied to teleology and uh, the final cause. And um, and, Arist uh, and uh, Simondon's criticism, of course, right, is, uh, well, that's presupposing the individual already, right? This is not solving the problem. And it's interesting of mathematics, kind of hard. And he was basically, he took biology as his starting point and the way, you know, a seed becomes a grown tree, you know, that kind of thing. And, uh, and I guess Simondon is saying, we actually need the mathematical and we need to conceive of individuation by way in, in some way, uh, involving mathematics. And, uh, and I guess what's really interesting is how, you know, like this, this idea, I think it's the idea of intensity that gets, uh, plays a key role here. And intensity, or this is a symmetry that we've been talking about, these multiple orders, all that kind of stuff, is all really mathematical, right? And somehow mathematics is supposed to play a kind of role here. Um, I don't, personally, I don't really understand that all that well. And I guess, to me, it almost seems kind of, almost like quasi, um, a, a little mystifying, you know? Um, so anyway, putting that out there. Yeah, that's a that's a good point about the the, the mathematics bit in in um, his his criticism of what's insufficient for in in Aristotle's thought, um, um, and uh, yeah, I think it's it's also fair to say that Simondon doesn't really uh, thematize mathematics, so he doesn't give us a, an account of what mathematical knowledge consists in. Um, uh, or you know how it um, relates to physical knowledge and and so on. Um, um, so that would be um, an area that would be worth investigating more. I think like how how mathematics mathematical knowledge fits into Simondon's thought. Um, but um, yeah, I think um, I mean I, I think the criticism. Um, is is fair uh, in the sense that um, we do see um, as a sort of just as an empirical fact about um, the history of, of science. Um, there's a um, the Aristotelian uh, tradition, or or as long as Aristotle was taken as sort of the model for um, physical knowledge, uh, there there is um, a, a de-emphasis on. Um, uh, measurement um, and the use of mathematics um, as a um, as a, a principle for physical knowledge, 
Um, and then it, uh, with the uh, sort of transformation that comes about, um, you know, through the work of, of Galileo and others around that same time, um, there's at the same time an introduction of uh, of um, measurement and and the use of mathematics in natural science, and then also um, a certain repudiation of Aristotle. Uh, so there's um, just at the sort of uh, empirical um, level of, of the history of science, there does seem to be um, some sort of um, uh, correlation between uh, this um, lack of, of a mathematical um, basis for physical physical knowledge um, and the, the reference to Aristotle. Um, and and in, in particular, a lot of the early modern um, uh, natural scientists uh, referred to Plato as a as a model and and looked to the the Timaeus for um, as a sort of um, um, model of uh, uh, what natural science should look like. Um, um, of course, with modifications, um, but uh, um, yeah, this is, this is a, a an area that I think would be worth um, looking into more how, how mathematical knowledge fits in with Simondon's general picture of knowledge. Right. Makes, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. I guess the challenge is because the, the standard or one picture of mathematics that uh, is there is mathematics deals with eternal truths that are, you know, basically pure being um, that numbers maybe are, I guess maybe it's a kind of Pythagorean view of mathematics. I'm not sure. Uh, but what's interesting here is mathematics is put to the service of um, knowing something like a process or this ontogenesis that Simondon is talking about, and uh, and I guess that you know that I guess that implies a different uh, sorry there's another one. that implies a different picture of mathematics than the uh, the standard so I'm gonna have to mute but. Uh, I'm kind of out of practice in a sense of catching up on readings, but I really liked uh, and was interested in his, this section on sensation and it feels like he's setting up, you know, when he says it seeks to find an, an epistemology that would be anterior to any logic. Some of the discussions we've had before about what transduction is and stuff like that. But I was just wondering if anyone would be able to help, uh, I don't know, maybe restate or, or kind of tease out some of the stuff he's saying here about, empiricism because i'm interested in it's like he's saying when he's saying uh, scientific knowledge has to not no longer be conceived within an empiricist doctrine and that they're needing to get away from a notion of uh sensation being the real and the real being concrete there's like a there's an approach to sensation there i think he says that's about not revealing it's not looking at sensation as though it is it reveals some sort of deeper substance or is like a mask of a deeper substantialism that seems to track to me and even reminds me of like some of the Bergson stuff we've read that I guess I'm, I'm trying to piece it all together. I just wondered if anyone had uh, comments on that. Um, I think here, this is something that um, we'll, we'll have to come back to, to some extent uh, when we get to the, the, the section on psychic individuation, um, um, because he, he is going to talk about sensation there. Um, but I think one key point um, here is that um, um, is that there's a uh, sensation has to do with a living individual. Um, it's a relation. So he says uh, 
sensation must appear as the relation of a living individual with the milieu in which it is found. Um, so um, because, because of this relational quality of sensation, it's, um, uh, there's, a, there's a sort of um, traditional um, epistemological doctrine or, or not even a doctrine, but um, uh, a current in epistemology um, that would tend to uh, say that we can only ever have knowledge of uh, uh, the coordination of sensations or something along those lines. Um, so we can, we can um, when we do science, what we're doing is coming up with laws to predict uh, future sensations or something like that. Um, um, but uh, um, what Simon Dome what Simondo is criticizing in that doctrine, uh, that, that account of the relationship between sensation uh, and, and knowledge or scientific knowledge in particular, is, um, is that it's presupposing that what sensation should do or, or what we are, are seeking through sensation is knowledge of a, substan a substantial individual or, or a substance, um, um, which would be... Um, uh, ontologically distinct from the relations into which it enters. Um, whereas, um, as we've seen a, a number of times, Simon Don wants to, um, wants to, uh, understand, uh, relation as having the status of being, um, so that, uh, in sensation, there's a, uh, um, if it's uh, if sensation is truly a relation, so uh, something that has the status of being, then we have to understand it as part of the process of individuation of the entire subject-object system, rather than as uh, one um, as like a, a, an effect on the subject or something like that. Um, so that's um, um, so that's that's sort of what's going on um, with uh, the criticism of of this account of sensation. Um, and its relation to, to knowledge. Would you say that it also is related to the whole, the topological, like, allegmatic distinction, or not distinction, that the topological and allegmatic notion of information that we discussed previously, and, like, um, as opposed to, because he brings up induction as well, which seems to bring up the problems with logic and analogy that we previously discussed. So, like, going in the direction of, you know, if it's topological, then the you know, the informing of the, the surface states are not sort of like ancillary, but are part of sort of trying to understand the individual milieu relation itself. I might just be making words up here, but that's how I'm seeing it. I think uh, <clears throat> there's also maybe like a, a definition issue here. Empiricism is a word. Uh, if, you, if, if, if you look at it the way Deleuze looks at it, then it means something different uh i think than in the way that maybe simondin is using it here uh because deleuze would say like i think he says it in empiricism and subjectivity it might be in desert islands and other texts but he's like no empiricist would like really say like uh the 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 the, the sensation of immediate experience is all there is. That's like nonsense. The, the, the point of experience or of empiricism is at the center, there's like a driving question of how is, how does the subject arise in the given? 
Right. So empiricism does not believe in any form of transcendental or privileged viewpoint from which the subject arises, but that the subject is not given, but arises from within the given. Whereas, like, I think Simondon is using empiricism here specifically to mean kind of like the methodological, scientific, fact-gathering, everything is based in experience, meaning of empiricism. Uh, yeah, I think that, I think that's right. That um, that that Deleuze is definitely using uh, empiricism in a different way. So I think when Deleuze talks about empiricism, he's thinking of um, like the way that Hume um, will um, um, the way that Hume uh, sort of depicts the formation of uh, a personal um, of a, a subject um, out of the the um, construction from uh, um, ideas and impressions and so on. Um, so I think, I think that's sort of what he has in mind. Um, and he has less, he's less interested in empiricism as a doctrine of knowledge. Um, um, uh, whereas what Simon Don was talking about is, um, um, is precisely about empiricism as a doctrine of knowledge. Um, so that, uh, yeah, it has to do with, um, the relationship between sensation and and knowledge um, and um, the way that uh, one that sensation uh, is the the sort of building block of knowledge um, for for empiricism. Uh, so I think that's that's more what he has in mind when he talks about um, empiricism. Um, but I think we should go on to the next uh, subsection so we don't get uh, just stuck on on this. So if someone else could read the first uh, page or so, I think it's one of these. Giant paragraphs again. Subsection three, epistemological consequences, reality of relation, and the notion of substance. What modification have we had to contribute to the, con the conception of physical individuation by passing from the individuation of allotropic forms to the more fundamental individuation of the crystal with respect to the amorphous substance? The idea that individuation consists in an operation has remained unmodified but we have been able to specify that the relation that this operation establishes can sometimes be currently operative and sometimes in suspense, thereby assuming all the apparent characteristics of substantial stability. Here, relation is observable as an active limit, and its type of reality is that of a limit. In this sense, we can define the individual as a limited being, but only on condition of thereby understanding that a limited being is a polarizing being that possesses an indefinite dynamism of growth with respect to an amorphous milieu. The individual is not substance, for substance is not limited by anything other than itself. This is what leads Spinoza to conceive substance as infinite and unique. Every rigorous substantialism excludes the notion of the individual, as we can see in Descartes, who could not explain to Princess Elizabeth in what the union of the substances in man consists, and even more so in Spinoza, who considers the individual as a semblance. The finite being is the exact contrary of the limited being, for the finite being is self-limiting, since it does not possess a sufficient quantity of being to grow endlessly. On the contrary, in this indefinite being that the individual is, the dynamism of growing does not stop, 
since the successive stages of growing are like a number of relays due to which increasingly large quantities of potential energy are captured in order to organize and incorporate increasingly considerable amounts of amorphous matter. Thus, relative to the initial germ, crystals visible to the naked eye are already considerable edifices. A cubic uh, micrometer of diamond contains more than 177 billion atoms of carbon. It can therefore be thought that the crystalline germ has enlarged enormously when it attains the size of a crystal that is visible at the limit of the separative power of optical microscopes. But it is also known that it is possible to nourish an artificial crystal in a supersaturated solution quite carefully, quite carefully maintained in conditions of slow growth so as to obtain a crystalline individual weighing several kilograms. In this case, even if it were supposed that the crystalline germ is already an edifice of large dimensions relative to the atoms of which it is composed, we would find that the volume of a cubic uh, decimeter has a mass one quadrillion times superior to that of a supposed crystalline germ at one cubic micrometer of volume. Uh, Crystals of an ordinary size, which almost constitute the totality of the terrestrial surface, like those of quartz, feldspar, and mica, which make up the composition of granite, have a mass equal to several million times that of their germ. I'll just read this next sentence because I think it follows. Uh, I don't know. Um, Thus, it is completely necessary to suppose the existence of a feedback mechanism that allows for the extremely small amount of energy contained in the germ's limit to structure a rather considerable mass of amorphous substance. Yeah, we can stop there for now. Um, uh, Yeah, again, this is sort of an arbitrary cutoff point because this is one giant paragraph like he uh, likes to give us. but uh, yeah, let's stop there. And uh, um, so one one key point of this bit that we just read is um, he specified what the difference is between the um, uh, relative notion of individuation and the absolute notion of individuation. So um, uh, individuation proceeding from uh, uh, something already individuated. Uh, so the one crystal form recrystallizing into the other um, as opposed to, um, in this case, the, the amorphous substance uh, crystallizing for the first time. Um, and, and so one, one of the key differences is, um, is that um, um, looking at the uh, absolute notion of individuation, we can see that um, it has a, uh, a capacity to be suspended or, um, and to give... Um, as he says, the appearance of uh, substantial stability, um, so that uh, so this is where we we have our, our notion of, of metastability, um, um, where where we have something that is um, um, uh, uh, something created, something um, that is the result of a process, um, but that also has the capacity to further that process uh, or to continue that process. Um, in, in the future uh, under the right conditions. So um, here, then he, he goes on to specify this as, as being the limit of the crystal. So that um, uh, and when we saw some discussion of this um, last time, I think, but the, the crystal forms uh, by um, 
uh, accretion at the limit of the of the germ. So you have one layer of molecules around the around the germ, and then that layer crystallizes, um, and then uh, the next layer around the the first layer crystallizes, um, and then and and so on. Um, until the entire um, amorphous substance is crystallized um, so that the, the limit of the crystal is both a, a product of the individuation process and it's also uh, plays the role of the germ for the next uh, stage of the crystallization process. So um, the actual energy that you introduce into the system uh, by introducing the germ is very small, um, but it um, it uh, sort of subordinates the potential energy contained in the amorphous substance uh, so that it um, carries out the work of crystallization, of, of structuration. Um, and uh, as he points out, the, uh, this tiny germ can uh, bring about the crystallization of uh, many millions of times more um, amorphous substance than is contained in that germ. Uh, one thing that this section made me think of is, um, I think early on, I think it was Aldrin's who pointed out that there was a kind of a a problem or an ambiguity with Simondon needing to presuppose the germ for the process of individuation. Um, but at least it's not the case that he's presupposing some kind of like an, an atom, which is like a infinitely self-identical but um the individual that starts the process of individuation is itself um kind of a kind of frozen relation from another process of individuation which maybe doesn't solve the problem but i think uh makes it a little a little bit more complex and interesting i guess yeah there's a bit um th this is a i think a sort of a recurring uh, problem that we've, we've discussed a few times um, as it came up, but there's a bit, um, I think, I'm not sure if it's in this subsection or the next one uh, that I was just reading today, um, but where he, he talks about um, how the, the formation of these germs, these crystalline germs, is is still mysterious. Um, so where, where the, like, when you start from a, 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 um, a amorphous substance, um, the, the germs appear sort of spontaneously um, and uh, and how they uh, how they appear and, and what the conditions are for those that appearance is uh, uh, sort of mysterious um, and so I think to some extent we could might not be a very satisfying answer but we could just say that the, the point in in Simon Don's um, system that that is left unexplained is because uh, just empirically we don't have the or at the time he was writing at least we didn't have um, knowledge of uh, how that uh, process works, um, and it would be interesting to, to look at uh, to see whether that's um, uh, whether that's changed in the 50, 60 years since uh, since he was writing. Um, um, whether there there has been more um, a better account of the formation of those crystalline germs. Um, that's something I don't know, but would be worth investigating. I think. Well, for me, a question here is over. Uh, the meaning of this absolute individuation. I'm wondering in what sense he means it as absolute. Uh, so he's saying it's the individuation from uh, the amorphous substance 
uh, into a crystal. Um, but I guess what I'm wondering is if for Simondon, there's, if it's possible to ever say, um, you know, there is an amorphous solution at some point and nothing else. And then we ask, well, how did it all get started? You know, how did the first transfer from amorphous into a structured crystal happen? Um, and I wonder if he might say, well, actually, that's that question is not really valid because um, it's presupposing a kind of separation of the two that's artificial or, uh, you know, a kind of uh, breaking up of the, um, I guess what I'm wondering is, could it be that what's basic and fundamental is the, re the very relation of becoming? And so there was never a state in which it was just amorphous solution. And we had to explain how did the first germ, you know, where did the first germ come from? And maybe it's a kind of, a, I don't know, like an eternal, almost like an eternal recurrence of the individuation process. Like it's, it's ontogenesis all the way down. Uh, I mean, that might be one way of resolving that issue, right? Like, uh, you know, becoming is really all there is. And then occasional, you know, in some instances, um, we get substances that seem relatively stable, but that's derivative, right? I, I hope that makes sense. Yeah, I think that makes sense. Um, and, and that would be one, uh, I guess, approach to try to answer this question or to uh, more, more like to uh, dissolve the question, I guess, to, to make us not feel like we need to answer that question anymore. The reason I'm, I'm sort of hesitant to, uh, to take that approach or to, to fully accept that approach is that um, in, in the introduction and then again in the conclusion once we come to it, he, he does talk about um, something like a, a dephasing of being um, where we, we seem to start with something like being as um, uh, a pre-individual, uh, something analogous to that um, amorphous substance and then there's a, a splitting of that being into uh, the the different phases. Um, and so it, it does seem as if the the bigger picture, the the at the level of ontology, he wants to um, he wants to maintain something like uh, a pre-individual being uh, or uh, an amorphous substance as the first moment uh, or um, a, a first term, which then undergoes splitting. Um, and uh, and the process of individuation would would be secondary to that uh, to that splitting, and uh, yeah. So, insofar as as the um, pre-individual being is something like a first moment, um, then it 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 does still leave that question open of of where the the structural germ uh, comes in uh, or um, arises from. Um, but I think we can go on to the next bit. Uh, so another um, page or so of this multi-page paragraph, uh, if someone else would like to read. In fact, the limit of the crystal is the germ during growth. And this limit is displaced to the degree that it, the crystal grows. It is composed of atoms that are always new, but it remains dynamically identical to itself and grows on the surface by conceiving 
conserving the same local characteristics of growth. This primordial role of the limit is particularly highlighted by phenomena such as figures of corrosion and especially of epitaxy, which constitute a remarkable counterproof. Figures of corrosion which are obtained in the assault of a crystal by a reagent manifest tiny depressions with regular contours that could be called negative crystals. However, these negative crystals have a different form depending on the facet of the crystal on which they appear. Fluorine can be attacked by sulfuric acid, yet fluorine crystallizes in the form of cubes, which, when struck, yield facets parallel to those of the regular octahedron. Through corrosion, quadrangular pyramids can be seen to appear on the facet of the cube while little triangular pyramids appear on the facet of the octahedron. All the figures that appear on the same facet have the same orientation. Epitaxy is a phenomenon that occurs when a crystal is taken as a support of a substance during crystallization. Nascent crystals are oriented by the crystalline facet of a different chemical substance on which they are placed. The crystal's asymmetry or dissymmetry appears in these two phenomena. Thus, when calcite and dolomite, CO3Ca and CO32CAMG, are attacked by diluted nitric acid, calcite presents symmetrical figures of corrosion on a facet of cleavage, while dolomite presents dissymmetrical figures. These examples show that the characteristics of the libid of the physical individual can appear in each point of the individual, thereby again becoming a limit. For example, here, through cleavage. The individual can therefore play a role of information and end up, even locally, as an active singularity capable of polarizing. Um, yeah, we can stop here for now. Um, it's just... Worth worth noting that um, that paragraph break is added in the translation, um, and there's there's no break in the French. Um, so, I, yeah, I don't know why exactly. I mean, it, it's uh, it's fine to break up the paragraph, I guess, but um, I don't think he's done that before uh, in other big paragraphs. So that's kind of strange. Doesn't this kind of speak to what we were just saying, though? Why I was inclined to agree with what Aldrims was saying of like. There is a there is this very like you know not to always bang on that train but the this Bergsonian sense of starting from an idea of a negation or of the negative less than you know what comes a, supposedly comes after it is is problematic and in this case he's talking about like I love at the end of this paragraph where he says the individual can play the role of information and end up itself a kind of as an active singularity that I. I I could be wrong, but I, it strikes me like when he's talking about things like because because there is a point where there is dephasing hasn't occurred yet as he's discussed, but to me that almost seems like a methodological conceit. The way that you know Bergson would talk about pure memory or pure perception, sort of like we need to establish those limits in order to understand the actually mixed uh, state that things are always becoming in. Um, and and I guess I was thinking you know along these lines of of one. Uh, individual can end up becoming the singularity for an, another individual that we arrive like through transduction and through these processes it's it's as though we we can arrive at what seems like this originary moment but it's 
but we have to remember that we didn't start from there. So like by arriving at, at that point of what appears to be where dephasing hasn't yet occurred, it's as though that is an origin point, but that we only reached that, you know, genealogically backwards, right? At least that's how I understand the method. So it's, it's not that we're actually proceeding from there. It's just that we've reached what appears to be kind of like the deepest point we can in order to like discuss ontogenesis. But, but at any point, I mean, in theory, couldn't you, couldn't this principle apply that, you know, that, that, that individual or that, that point of seeming, uh, I don't know what the word is of, uh, whatever you see substance or that, that amorphous substance, there could be, it could just be a, a previous support, I guess is what I'm saying. And I don't, I don't know if that's correct, but that's kind of how I was reading that. I wonder if maybe the question we're up against is about the, the unity of being and becoming and what such a unity can mean. Uh, because I guess there's two positions that it seems to me Simondon is not, you know, not it's not it's not what he's doing on the one hand privileging being over becoming uh it's very clear you know he is uh um against that that position but then there's another position where you can privilege becoming over being right and i guess my hunch is that he's not doing that either he seems to want some kind of you know maybe a mediation or a or a a unity of being and becoming. Um, and uh, so, you know, I don't think it's, you know, he's clearly not just this kind of philosopher of constant change and, you know, uh, chaos. And, you know, that's that. Uh, and I'm not saying, Alosha, that that's what you're pointing at. But I guess I'm, I'm um, it seems like something about, like, even in the process of ontogenesis, we still want to discern being there, right? And uh, and that might lead down this road towards that original state of uh, the the prior to uh, uh, to the dephasing. Yeah, that's an interesting point. Uh, I hadn't thought of it in those terms. Um, uh, I think that's. Um, yeah, the the uh, the relationship between being and becoming. Um, uh, I think you're right that he doesn't want to um, sort of completely subordinate being to becoming, um, which would be maybe a, a, a sort of um, I don't know a pop Bergsonian approach or something like that. Um, like uh, you know everything is becoming and and uh, being is an illusion or something like that. Um, um, but uh, I think, um, yeah, I think you're right that he wants to find some sort of mediating concept between being and becoming. And I think that's what um, um, the notion of, of, of transduction is supposed to do. Um, it's, a, it's a kind of uh, mediation between the two. Um, um, and uh, and yeah, so I, I think that might be. I think you might be right that the um, the problem of of that um, initial uh, pre individual being um, sort of recurs at that level uh, of of the of the dialectic. Um, but I think we can go on um, to the next bit. Um, 
which is continuing this big power graph. Um, and we won't really see, uh, it's only towards the end of this power graph that we see more of the, like what he's, why he's bringing up all these examples, like these uh, negative crystals and so on. Um, so we have the sort of stage tune for that. Nevertheless, we can wonder whether these properties, particularly the property of homogeneity, as we shall note, can still exist on the very small scale. Is there an inferior limit of this crystalline individuation? In 1784, I formulated the reticular theory of crystals, and this was confirmed in 1912 by Laue due to the discovery of the diffraction of X-rays by crystals, which behave as a network. Iri studied calcite, which presents itself in extremely various forms. He discovered that all the crystals of calcite through, through cleavage can yield the same rhombohedron, which is a parallelopiped whose six facets are equal diamond shapes and form together an angle of 105 degrees, five minutes. Through the phenomenon of parting, we can make these rhombohedrons in increasingly small and visible only through a microscope, but the form does not change. Irie supposed the limit to these successive divisions, and he imagined the crystals of calcite as stacks of these elementary rhombohedrons. With Alawa's method, it, it became possible to measure with x-rays the dimensions of this elementary rhombohedron whose height is equal to 3.029 by 10 to the minus 8 centimeters. Halite, which has three regular cleavages, three rectangular cleavages, consists of indivisible elementary cubes whose ultimate measure is 5.628 by 10 to the minus 8 centimeters. We can therefore consider a halite crystal as constituted by material particles, molecules of sodium chloride, arranged in the nodes of a crystalline network constituted by three sets of particular planes intersecting at a right angle. The elementary cube is called the crystalline lattice. Calcite will be constituted by three systems of particular planes, which together form an angle of 105 degrees five minutes and are each separated by the constant interval of 3.029 by 10 to the minus eight centimeters. Each crystal can be considered as con constituted by a network of parallelopipeds. This reticular structure not only accounts for the stratification parallel to the cleaves, but even, so, even more so for the various mo modes of stratification. Thus, in the cubic network, which explains the structure of halite, we can observe a stratification parallel to the diagonals of the cube. The stratification appears in zinc sulfide. The nodes of the cubic network can be arranged in reticular planes parallel to the facets of the regular octahedron. Above, we have seen the, the cleavage of fluoride, which corresponds to such a stratification. We ought to contemplate this notion of multiple stratification particularly, for it gives both an intelligible and a real content to the idea of lineage. The limit is constitutive when it is no longer the material boundary of a being, but is its structure, constituted by the ensemble of points, which are analogous to any other point of the crystalline milieu. The crystalline milieu is a periodic milieu. To know the crystalline milieu completely, all we need to know is the content of the crystalline elementary lattice, i.e. the position of the different atoms, by submitting the latter to translations according to the three axes of coordinates, we will find all the analogous points that correspond to them in the milieu. The crystalline milieu is a triply periodic milieu whose, whose period is defined by the lattice parameters. According to Jean Vier, we can compose an image, at least in the plane, of the crystal's periodicity by comparing it to the indefinitely repeated motif of a wallpaper. Vier also adds, we also find this motif in all of the nodes of a network of parallelograms, just like the crystal's elementary lattice, the sides of the elementary parallelogram do not have any existence. Thus, the limit is not predetermined. It consists in structuration. The moment that an arbitrary point is chosen in this triply periodic milieu, both the elementary lattice and the set of spatial limits are determined. 
In fact, the shared source of the limit and the structuration is Lemelia's periodicity. Here, with a more rational content, we rediscover the already indicated notion of the indefinite possibility of growth. The crystal can grow while conserving all of its characteristics because it possesses a periodic structure. The growth is therefore always identical to itself. A crystal has no center that allows us to measure the distance of one point of its exterior contour with respect to its center. Relative, relative to the crystal structure, its limit is no more distant from the center than the other points. The crystal's limit is in virtually every point, and it can really appear in, in each point through a cleavage. The words interiority and exteriority cannot be applied with their usual meaning to this reality that the crystal is. On the contrary, let's consider an amorphous substance. It must be bounded by a membrane, and its surface can have properties that belong exclusively to the surface. Thus, a drop of water produced by a water dropper takes on, during its formation, a certain, num <clears throat> a certain number of successive aspects that can be studied by mechanics. These aspects depend on the diameter of the tube, the force of attraction due to gravity, and the superficial tension of the liquid. Here, the phenomenon is extremely variable according to the order of magnitude adopted, since the envelope acts as an envelope and not as a limit. Furthermore, let us indeed remark that amorphous bodies can in certain cases take on regular forms, like that of mist formed by drops of water, but we cannot speak of the individuation of a water drop like we speak of the individuation of the crystal, because the former does not possess a periodic structure, at least not rigorously and in, in the totality of its mass. A drop of water with large dimensions is not exactly identical for all its properties to a drop of water with small dimensions. Um, so here he is contrasting the... Um, individuation of a, a crystal um, with the um, un, unindividuated, uh, what we can maybe call a, a, like a quasi-individual, um, such as a, a drop of water, um, so that um, in, the, in the case of the drop of water, there's, um, there's uh, um, it, it doesn't uh, form in the same way so that uh, it has a homogeneous structure throughout, um, there's a, a, a functional differentiation between the surface and the uh, interior, and um, drops of water of different sizes will have a different form because of uh, the effect of gravity and so on. Um, but um, there's no um, sort of internal structuration of the drop of water um, so that it will have a, a homogeneous structure throughout, whereas in the case of the crystal, um, the the crystal has the same structure throughout, and and so there's no the each portion of the crystal can uh, play the role of the limit uh, and serve as the the uh, germ for a new form a new layer of individuation um, if it's uh, broken off or something like that. Um, yeah, and then the question, Alyosha, you had it in the in the chat there. Yeah, the um, periodic here just means yeah the the repeating crystalline structure so that um, if you take if you take a, a crystal um, with a like a cubical structure, for example, and you just move every atom uh, one cube to the right or one cube up or whatever, then you end up with a crystal that has the same structure. Um, um, so that uh, the the structure of the cube is, is um, it repeats over um, these tiny cubes of, of whatever three point zero two nine. Uh, yeah, three point zero two nine by ten to the minus eight centimeters. Um, yeah, so that's um, uh, that's what the periodic means there. Uh, and then the question: what um, what exactly um, 
what it means to describe something as as an amorphous body. Um, um, I don't think the the having the surface is a, a necessary property of uh, um, of an amorphous. Of, well, actually, you know, he does say it must be bounded by a membrane. Um, um, I think the when we talk about a membrane, though, that has to do with the um, the um, the relationship between water and uh, another substance like air, um, the surrounding air. Um, so I think, hmm, I, I mean, I guess uh, the 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 clay or something like that is. Um, um, uh, uh, would have a membrane as well. Um, I'm not sure if uh, um, if that's correct. Uh, you know, from a, a physical point of view, that would be something. Uh, it would be helpful to have someone who could uh, confirm or deny that um, whether we can whether, whether we can describe clay as having a membrane um, in the same way that water does. Um, well, I don't know if the surface thing is, enough, but I mean, certainly clay examples seem to apply, right? Because of the isn't the whole point of the homogeneity within it? Uh, you know, so the homogeneity is allows it to sort of be formed by the singularity and whatnot. I'm I'm just trying to understand the terms because I, I found this section really helpful, but I'm still trying to grasp amorphous substance. I think. Yeah, I mean, um, I, I'm not 100 sure that the clay example fits here because I'm, I'm not sure about the the membrane part. Um, um, but there are other cases that he, he mentions earlier when he's talking about um, like the way that sulfur, for example, can be um, uh, uh, in a, an amorphous state and then it can crystallize in two different um, crystalline structures. Um, and um, so we can have a, a, an amorphous state of sulfur um, um, and um, most substances, I think, can have an amorphous state um, um, which... Uh, can then be crystallized uh, um, in some substances. Um, but then there's also something like, um, I guess glass would be an example of something that doesn't have a, a crystalline state um, so that it, it's, uh, it has a, a vitreous state, which, um, which isn't properly, uh, which is, it, it's still amorphous. So it's not a, glass is not an individual in the proper sense um, for Simon Dong. Can I ask a quick question before we go on? Oh, um, yeah, sure. I'm just curious. Um, I was just flipping back through the text. I'm wondering to what extent this um, repeatable, this periodic structure that he's talking about here, um, I'm wondering how much it relates to the material condition that had come up earlier. Uh, I think we talked about it last time. You know, like the third the third element, I think he called it a kind of compatibility between energy and the germ. Um, that, you know, like he said, not every germ can individualize every amorphous field. And there's got to be some third kind of affinity or I think analogy he used. And I'm curious if this periodic structure here relates to that. And it may be an elaboration of that idea. Or if we're talking about something different, um, so the periodic structure in the crystal um, as a as a product or as a result of uh, of the process of individuation would be um, yeah would be the, the product of um, well I think yeah I'm just trying to think uh, it might be 
I think it would be wrong to say that it's a product um, only of the material condition um, or something like that. Um, in the like the example of the sulfur or these other um, substances that have uh, allotropic forms um, shows that the both the germ, uh, the the structuring uh, condition, and the um, uh, and the nature, the chemical nature of the substance uh, um, in the amorphous stage, both of them uh, contribute towards the um, the the structure that will result. Um, so I think. I think we'd have to say that um, the the periodic structure in the uh, crystal, as a result, is um, is is the product of uh, all three conditions. So the the structuring condition, the material condition, and the energetic condition all together. Um, I don't think we can uh, attribute it to one condition in particular. Yeah, I guess what I'm thinking is yeah, that makes sense. What I'm thinking is. Um... Uh, I guess I'm inclined to think of that material condition, which is still kind of mystifying to me what it is, um, as a kind of virtual um, virtual uh, what does he call it here? Sorry. Um, he, where he, well, he talks he calls it a, a kind of a motif of a wallpaper, like a virtual periodicity, basically. Uh, a kind of virtual structuration that makes a milieu amenable to certain germs, but not to others. Um, and in that sense, this seems related, but uh, yeah, it's it's hard to say. I guess he hasn't really done, he hasn't really given much of an explanation of that uh, middle term or uh, the material condition yet. Um, I think... Um, I think the material condition would just be the um, the chemical nature of of the substance in question, um, and and that's what um, um, that's what determines the compatibility between uh, um, a germ, uh, the structural condition, and uh, and the energetic condition. So the the um, the in the case of this crystallization example, like the temperature of, of the system as a whole. Um, uh, and, and so the, the material condition is just the, the chemical nature of the substance, which will determine um, whether a, a particular germ is compatible with a particular um, energetic condition uh, in, in order to produce uh, an individuating process. Um, so I think, uh, yeah, I think that's, or that's at least how I understand um, that material condition. Um, so it, it plays the role of uh, uh, mediating uh, or or making compatible, as you pointed out. Um, but I, I think it's it's just um, we can identify it with the the chemical nature of the the substance. Um, but yeah, we can we can continue. Um, Angus has been patiently waiting to read the next bit. Um, and yeah, so we're at the the bottom of page ninety one. The individuation that we will characterize through the example of the crystal cannot exist without an elementary discontinuity on a more restricted scale. It takes an edifice of atoms to constitute a crystalline lattice, and this structuration would be very difficult to conceive without an elementary discontinuity. It's true that when Descartes wanted to explain all physical effects through figure and movement, he sought to found the existence of forms on something other than elementary discontinuity, which was inconceivable in a system where an 
absolute vacuum is excluded. Insofar as extension is substantialized and becomes res extensa. Thus, Descartes also considered crystals quite carefully. And he even attentively observed the genesis of artificial crystals in a supersaturated solution of sea salt by attempting to explain, explain it through figure and movement. But Descartes experiences great difficulty in discovering the foundation of structures. At the beginning of Meteors, he strives to show a genesis of spatial boundaries, starting from the opposition of the direction of the rotation of two neighboring vortices. Movement is what primordially individuates regions of space. In a mechanics without live forces, movement indeed can seem to be a purely geometrical determination. But movement by itself in a matter-space continuum cannot easily constitute an anisotropy of physical properties. That Descartes' attempt made to explain the magnetic field through figure and movement, starting from spirals generated by the poles of the magnet and pivoting around themselves, remains unfruitful. We can indeed use this hypothesis to explain how two poles of the same, of the same name repel one another or how two poles of contrary names attract one another. We cannot explain the coexistence of these two properties because this coexistence requires an anisotropy, whereas Descartes' space matter is isotropic. Substantialism can only explain phenomena of isotropy. Polarization, the most elementary condition of relation, remains incomprehensible in a rigorous substantialism. Thus, Descartes also strives to explain all the phenomena in which a field manifests vectorial magnitudes via the mechanism of subtle matter. He devoted a lot of attention to crystals because they presented him with a clear illustration of the reality of figures. They are substantialized geometric, geometrical forms. But since his system excludes the vacuum, Descartes' system made it impossible to recognize what is fundamental in the crystalline state, namely the genetic individuation of periodic and therefore discontinuous structure, which is opposed to the continuous or to the disorder of the amorphous state. However, to be fully rigorous, we should not claim that if the crystalline state is discontinuous, then the amorphous state is continuous. In fact, the same substance can present itself in, in the amorphous state or in the crystalline state without a modification of its elementary particles. But even if it is composed of discontinuous elements like molecules, a substance can behave as continuous from the moment that enough elementary particles are implicated in the production of the phenomenon. Indeed, a multitude of disorganized actions, i.e. those that obey neither a polarization nor a periodic distribution in time, have average sums that are distributed in an isotropic field. These include, for example, the pressures in a compressed gas. The example of Brownian motion, which sheds light on the thermal agitation of large molecules, also illustrates this condition of isotropic milieus. If, in order to observe this movement, we consider increasingly large visible particles, the movements of these particles end up be becoming imperceptible. This is because the instantaneous sum of the energies received on each facet of the portion of molecules in a state of agitation is increasingly low with respect to the mass of the observable particle. The more voluminous the particle, the more elevated the number of collisions on each facet per unit of time. Since the distribution of these collisions occurs at random, 
the forces per unit of surface are more constant in time as the surfaces are con surfaces considered are increasingly large. And an observable particle that is voluminous enough remains practically at rest. For sufficient durations and orders of dimension, the disorganized discontinuous is equivalent to the continuous. It is functionally continuous. The discontinuous can therefore manifest sometimes as continuous and sometimes as discontinuous according to whether it is organized or disorganized. But the continuous cannot functionally present, present itself as discontinuous since it is isotropic. Right, so um, we had here some uh, discussion of uh, Descartes' system of physics, um, which, uh, as, as Simondon mentions here, uh, is a system that has no void. Um, so space and matter are identical. Um, um, and the um, one of the, well, the problem in general with, with that system is that um, there's no way to explain um, uh, anisotropy so that um, if if space and matter are identical and there's they're just this homogeneous space matter substance um, the extended thing um, then um, it it becomes impossible to explain how there's a, something like a polarization or a differentiation of directions within that space matter um, and and the example um, of the magnets um, so so Descartes tries to explain the magnet magnets um, by um, these these spirals of subtle matter, um, um, which would uh, be either go in a clockwise or a counterclockwise direction, but but as Simon Do points out, that um, you need a clockwise spiral for um, for one for either attraction or repulsion. I can't remember which one, but you need a clockwise spiral for one um, for one direction of motion, and you need a counterclockwise spiral for the other direction of motion. Um, uh, of magnets, so that it's, it's impossible to have both attraction of uh, opposite poles of the magnet and repulsion of same poles of the magnet using these spirals um, um, of, of subtle matter. So that um, uh, this is this is sort of a, a symptom that Simondon is identifying of the um, the incapacity of substantialism uh, to explain anisotropy or or polarization or uh, differentiation of direction yeah so this is this is directed at Descartes system in particular but um, more generally at um, uh, any any system that would want to begin with uh, something like a, a pure substance uh, or um, uh, some uh, something substantial that has the the, the pre-given quality of individuation that, that isn't the result of a genesis. Uh, and, then, and then he goes on to talk about the relationship between the continuous and the discontinuous, and we'll see more about this in the next chapter as well. What he, he argues here is that um, the discontinuous is more fundamental than the continuous because through um, the action of uh, probabilistic uh, um, interaction, uh, so large numbers of, of discontinuous actions can approximate the continuous um, and, and can therefore um, uh, give, the, uh, give the effect of, of, isotropic, uh, of an isotropic um, uh, milieu um, 
but the continuous can't produce the effect of the discontinuous. So the, the discontinuous is, is more fundamental for that reason because it can, it can give the effect of the continuous, but not the other way around. Yeah, um, as, as I also mentioned, um, the, there's going to be a, a discussion of, uh, as I said, there's, there's more discussion of this relationship between the discontinuous and the continuous in the next chapter. And he, he is going to make a, a link between discontinuity and um, the, the role of relation as a status of being. Uh, we're going to see more well discussion of uh, quantum mechanics uh, because that, that is, is based on a, a fundamentally discontinuous um, um, understanding of, of uh, the physical world, um, uh, and and we'll see more on that in the next chapter. Okay, um, go on to the next bit. Uh, I can read. Um, I think this will take us to the end of the section. Um, I'll, I'll read the next bit. Continuing down this path, we shall find that the aspect of continuity can present itself as a particular case of discontinuous reality, whereas the reciprocal of this proposition is not true. The discontinuous is first with respect to the continuous. This is why the study of individuation, which grasps the discontinuous quad discontinuous, has a very profound ontological and epistemological value. It invites us to ask how ontogenesis is accomplished based on a system bearing energetic potentials and structural germs. There's individuation not of a substance, but of a system. And this individuation is what generates what we call substance starting from an initial singularity. Nevertheless, to arrive at an ontological primacy of the individual from these remarks would be to lose sight of the full nature of the fruitfulness of relation. The physical individual that is the crystal is a periodic structured being that results from a genesis in which a structural condition and a hylomorphic condition containing matter and energy encounter one another in a relation of compatibility. However, in order for the possibility of energy to be captured by a structure, it would have to be given in a potential form, i.e. distributed in an initially non-polarized milieu behaving as a continuum. The genesis of the individual requires the discontinuous of the structural germ and the functional continuum of the preliminary amorphous milieu. A potential energy, which is measurable by a scalar magnitude, can be captured by a, bun by a structure, a bundle of polarities that can be represented vectorially. The genesis of the individual is effectuated by the relation of these vectoral magnitudes and these scalar magnitudes. It is therefore unnecessary to replace substantialism with a monism of the constituted individual. A, a monological pluralism would still be a substantialism. However, every substantialism is a monism, whether unified or diversified, in the sense that it merely retains one of the two aspects of being, terms without operative relation. The physical individual integrates in its genesis the mutual operation of the continuous and the discontinuous, and its existence is the becoming of this ongoing genesis, prolonged in activity or in waiting. This supposes that individuation exists on an intermediate level between the order of magnitude of the particulate elements and that of the molar ensemble of the complete system. On this intermediate level, individuation is an operation of amplifying structuration that makes the active properties of the initially microphysical discontinuity pass to the macrophysical level. Individuation is in initiated on the level at which the discontinuous of the singular molecule is capable in a milieu in a hylomorphic situation of metastability of modulating an energy whose support is already a part of the continuum in the population of randomly arranged molecules, i.e. in a superior order of magnitude relative to the molar system. The polarizing singularity initiates in the amorphous milieu a cumulative structuration that spans the initially separated orders of magnitude. The singularity or information is that in which there is communication between orders of magnitude. 
as the initiator of the individual, it is conserved in the latter. So we, we have this priority of the discontinuous over the continuous, but we shouldn't understand that in terms of um, uh, a priority of already constituted individuals. Um, so we need, we need to understand the discontinuous um, as not as, um, as made up of already constituted individuals, um, which is something that we'll, we'll see more in the next chapter, how we, we can do that. So as, as he says, the, um, if, we, if we conceive of uh, the discontinuous as being made up of individuals, or um, if we take this priority of the, of the discontinuous to mean that already constituted individuals are, have ontological priority, then we end up with um, basically just uh, um, uh, uh, the same substantialism just divided up into into little bits or something like that. Um, um, so it's it's uh, we still have no um, substantialism is a is still a monism uh, as he puts it because um, uh, it's it's only grasping the it's only grasping being insofar as it's individuated. Um, and it, it doesn't grasp the other side uh, of being, uh, which is um, the um, the relation side um, of being, or the, the pre-individual side of being. Um, and so, um, yeah. So we'll see in the next chapter how we we can try to understand um, the discontinuous, this ontologically fundamental discontinuous, um, um, without taking it to be an already constituted individual. And one, one sort of a small note, um, but uh, we've, we've discussed uh, the last couple of weeks how he, he seems to alternate between talking about three conditions of individuation and two conditions um, where he, he identifies um, uh, two of them uh, as, as one condition. Uh, and so here he's, he talks about two conditions. So he says, um, uh, yeah, uh, a genesis in which a structural condition and a hylomorphic condition containing matter and energy encounter one another in a relation of compatibility. So he, he puts the, the material condition and the energetic condition together as one hylomorphic condition um, in this case here, uh, whereas in other cases he, um, he separates those two out and, and he, he gives a, a list of three conditions. So I'm not sure if there's... Um, a deeper reason for this alternation, like why he um, he goes back and forth between the two. Um, but uh, yeah, it would be interesting to try to figure that out. Um, so if there are no other comments uh, or questions, maybe we can wrap up a little bit early today because uh, we're at the end of the chapter uh, and then we can start um, chapter three next time, uh, if that's okay with everyone. Thank you everyone for your uh, questions and contributions and I'll see you all next week and we'll start chapter three.